Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. of day. This is episode 31 of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Ethan Castle. I'm Benjamin Castle. And we know what our listeners want more than anything, hot takes. You want some hot takes about how the D's are never going to win a game again? How the Gold Coast Suns are about to rattle off six flags in a row? You're not going to get them here. We're going to try to give more objective analysis. We will talk about the D's, though, and why they've lost two straight. We will talk about the Suns, and in particular, a couple of unsung heroes who really stepped up and played well in their 62-point thrashing of North Melbourne. Again, it is North Melbourne. But there were still a couple of surprise contributors there. We'll be talking all about Frio towards the end of this episode, and I'm actually going to sing a little, so stay tuned. Oh, God. You know what? Your singing has actually gotten a lot better within the past few years, and I'm surprised at just how much music you actually know. Yeah, obviously, just scratching the surface compared to your musical knowledge, but I'm aware of some songs. I mean, you're a lot better at Hurdle than I would expect. For those of you that don't know, Hurdle is like Wordle, but an audio thing, you know, gives you clips of a song, and ultimately, you have as much as 16 seconds of it to listen to. The first 16 seconds, that is. Yeah, sometimes I've gotten it on the first try because... It opens with, like, a very recognizable drum beat or something. My average is probably in the 1.2 range. Yeah. You get almost all of them. I maybe get half of them. If only it was, like, footy club songs, I think we'd get them pretty much all the time. Coburg Will Be There is now another favorite. Oh, yeah. We discussed that, by the way, in our ranking special, which doesn't really correspond to any specific round, so you don't have to listen to it before or after a certain episode. But do listen to that when you get the chance. We ranked the 18 club songs as well as the 18 Sir Doug Nichols round Guernseys. What did happen more recently, though, was that the two of us, along with Craig Wessels from A Yank on the Footy, another great American footy podcast, were profiled in an article by Shannon Gill for Code Sport. It was really fun talking with him maybe a week and a half ago by the time that this ends up being uploaded just about our formative AFL experiences, and just what we're getting out of the game now. And we learned something out of it, just realizing how significant community footy is on Sundays. And I think that also explains why we don't have quite as many Sunday night games and why there are more Saturday games than Sunday to begin with, because Sundays, I guess, are just meant for people to go out and play with their community teams and support their communities, just like how the NFL doesn't play on Friday nights because... That's for high school football. And Pac-12. And the American Conference. Usually those are much more compelling than Pac-12 games. Louisville and UCF on a Friday night? Count me in. 
I think that one had that crazy pick six at the end this past year. I think so, but we're talking about but we're talking about the wrong code of football here. So let's shift our focus toward what happened in Australia these past few days, shall we? Let's do it. Well, with Damian Lillard in attendance, the Geelong Cats won their third game in a row. And while this wasn't the most dramatic win the Cats have had in the last few years, they've had more dramatic over the Bulldogs, actually. And it wasn't their best all-around performance. I would call this one of the grittiest and proudest wins the Cats have had over the last three years. Bulldogs 10-10-70 defeated by Geelong 12-11-83. It was all going the Cats' way, seven goals to one in the first quarter, a 33-point lead. And then, as we'd had with the prior two games at the G, the game really took a turn when a key defender went down. Tom Stewart got the worst of a collision with Bailey Smith early in the second quarter. He was concussed. Great time for the Cats to have a bye so that he can recover from that ahead of their next contest, but... From there, Geelong were just never able to plug those sorts of gaps like Stewart's able to do it. In his absence, it really shows how much value he has. Though Zach Guthrie, among others, was really able to to help in that regard. Him and Sam DeConing shown in particular. Not only did Stewart go down, Jake Kolajashny had been put in COVID protocols before the game, so the defense was thin to begin with. I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat here for a second and say that Kolajashny didn't actually test positive for COVID and that someone with an ax to grind, maybe it's because they wanted to protect Charlie Curnow, maybe because they wanted to protect Tom Lynch, knew he was going to kick 40 goals in this game and wanted to stop him from taking over the Coleman lead. We all know it. Stay woke. Anyway, they're thin defensively. They were lucky to get into the half with a 24-point lead. They were able to withstand some pressure. They actually had a chance to stretch it back out to 29, but Tom Hawkins missed a set shot after the siren to the right. So they go into the half up 24, but the writing was on the wall. Those walls were caving in. The Bulldogs had 43 more uncontested possessions in the second quarter, and everything was just really falling apart without Stewart, not just in terms of leaving some openings defensively, which without him, you can understand why there's going to be a couple more defensive breakdowns, but just sloppy ball handling. Mitch Duncan had an incredible first quarter and a terrible second quarter. Everything was just falling apart, and it looked like a game that they were going to lose. And one thing that I noticed while I was going between the TV, because this game was on Fox Sports 2, and my computer to look at the stats, the Cats were burning through their interchanges super quickly. They were down to 21 with five minutes left in the third quarter. You typically have maybe high 20s to low 30s at that point, just making sure you have a lot ready for that last push in the fourth quarter, making sure you have fresh legs on the whole time. What ended up surprising me was that the Dogs didn't really end up using theirs at all, but I'll get to that a bit later. Going back to the second half, The Dogs weren't making good on many chances. Just two goals, three behinds in the third quarter when they had a whole lot more going forward than that. And then at the end of the third quarter, all hell broke loose. Some extracurricular activities that spiraled out of control centering around Bailey Smith and Zach Toohey. They were in close quarters combat in the middle of everything. Toohey leaned in a bit. Baz promptly headbutted him and ended up getting a little blood out of that. Tui emerged with, with a ripped jumper and probably feeling it a little bit on his head. What ended up coming out of that was that 
Bailey Smith got suspended for two games. The incident was deemed intentional, high contact, and medium impact. And Zach Tui was fined $1,000 for other misconduct, aka instigation. And I'm wondering, why such a small penalty? I'm thinking more toward the NHL and how fighting instigator penalties are kind of stacked on top of the others. I'm surprised Tui didn't get a higher fine or maybe even a game. I didn't think anything he did was suspension-worthy. I thought what Smith did was worth one game, not two. And you had said in the aftermath of that that if it went to the tribunal, Tui himself would probably campaign for Smith because he's such a nice guy. He'd give him back his wallet, too. It's not my wallet! It didn't even take until the tribunal for him to campaign for him. In the post-game interviews, he basically brushed the whole thing off, yet they gave Smith two games. Tui bleeding a little definitely didn't help Bailey's case there. Anyway, despite the Bulldogs wasting some of those chances in the third quarter, they were still down just 11 after three because Geelong had two behinds for the quarter. Their most recent goal at this point was with just under 16 minutes left in the second quarter. Since then, they had only kicked five behinds and just had been getting thrashed possession-wise. They're running low on interchanges, which was something that happened to them a bunch early in the season last year. I thought we had moved on from that. Apparently not. But to start the fourth quarter, a whiff by Alex Keith sets up a Tom Hawkins goal. Then Bailey Dale comes right back with one at the other end. Less than a minute later, Aaron Naughton finally scores after the Cats blow a center clearance. The lead's down to five, and you think, all right, here goes. The Bulldogs are going to take this one. If you're Geelong, it's frustrating, but you can at least say a lot of that was because of the injury to Tom Stewart. And yet, they win this game. Brendan Parfit was huge in the late goings. That's even more impressive now, knowing that he's going to be out a month with a hand injury. He was big in terms of generating defensive pressure, rushed it behind through, helped start stuff back the other way. And eventually, the Cats ended up breaking through again a few minutes later. It was Jeremy Cameron who got on the end of it. And despite a couple Cats misses and Tim English finally getting involved with a goal of his own, the dogs never got closer. The only reason the score looks even as respectable as it does for them is because Cody Waitman scored in the final minute. But before that, Cameron had stretched it out more than enough. He ended up having six and gaining the Coleman medal lead with his effort. Scored six goals, one behind on seven marks inside 50. Just kind of the automatic kick that the Cats have expected of him while he's still been able to work in tandem with Tom Hawkins. Either Cameron or Hawkins is going to be on pretty much every game. This time it was Jezza once again. Not to say Hawkins wasn't on as well, because the two really played in sync with each other. It's just one's going to end up getting more shots than the other, typically. It's not going to be a completely even distribution. I think the 13-point final margin is actually pretty appropriate, because if Geelong had won this game by closer to 20, I don't think it would have painted an accurate picture. But there were a lot of reasons they won this game, A lot of surprising contributors, in addition to the expected contributions of Jeremy Cameron, Sam DeConing. I had said Mitch Duncan needed to play well, and he was kind of the bellwether for this game. When he played well, the whole team played well. When he struggled, the whole team struggled. His first quarter was amazing. His fourth quarter was good. His middle two quarters were poor, and everything else just kind of went in line with that. What stood out to me when he was playing his best was just how good his instincts are. He's reading balls off the ground better than anybody. He might not be the biggest, fastest, or strongest guy, but he sees things before anyone else can. 
it's as if he's got the game going a little bit slower than everyone else. It's like he's doing like a tool assisted speed run to borrow the video game analogy there. A few moments that helped put this game away. Cam Guthrie with a great setup to Cameron for goal number five. He got a sixth and took over the Coleman lead by tackling Ed Richards and drawing a holding the ball. He wasn't just camped out inside 50. His tackling ability was good. He can play all over the ground. He's not just, you know, a Max King type who's just really good at taking marks and drilling set shots. And then I think the play that really put the game away fittingly was Mark Blitzov's killing an inside 50 with a big fist. Bang! On Cody Waitman. Waitman got a lot of flack for the diving he's been doing to try to draw pushes. There was one in the second quarter that was exceptionally bad. I think it was when he was matched up with DeConing. You knew Sam DeConing would have to play well even before Tom Stewart went down. After Stewart went down, it was amplified. Another real shutdown type performance for him. And then, holy cow, Zach Guthrie is a bona fide halfback and was pressed into some fullback duty at times as well and did more than admirably. His nine intercepts show for that. Full stat line for Zuthrie, as some are calling him. 19 disposals, 11 marks, 443 meters gained. A lot of different guys had to step up in defensive roles. Mark Blitzov's doing a lot, showing off the athleticism, roving around, using the fist now and then, as we mentioned with the late one that really put the game out of reach. Tom Atkins ended up with another 20 disposals and 8 intercepts. I thought it was a quietly solid night for Jed Buse. Gary Rowan got moved around a bit. I was surprised Brad Close didn't play further back more often. Mark O'Connor was quietly solid, didn't really shut down one guy in particular, but did his job. And a few other guys got forced into awkward defensive spots and managed to hold their own, including Brian Myers, who's, you know, if you're looking at the type of forward that could succeed as a defender, you would think, all right, Harry Himmelberg makes sense. You know, he's a big guy, he could take some intercept marks instead of looking to mark in the forward 50. He could do some spoils. Ryan Myers is not that big, and he actually had a couple of really nice spoils to go with his speed and tackling ability. And despite having an early bad turnover, he had a really solid game in that role. And I think it just goes to show you that while he's an unconventional player, he's got some value and good on the coaches for figuring out, hey, this guy's fast as shit and a really good tackler, we need defensive help, he can provide that. The other guy who really stepped up and delivered above all else, though, I think exceeding expectations in the brightest and best possible way was Reese Stanley. First game back from injury, you don't expect him to be 100%. He looked more than 100%, and the combination of him and Mark Blitzovs outdid Tim English. I was amazed. The Cats did lose clearances, but only 35-32. They won hitouts 38-23 against Tim freaking English. Well done. One of the things that this game highlighted for me was the need for the Dogs to have a true second ruck in there. English shown last game because it was the Eagles, and they didn't really have much going for them in the Rock. I mean, Bailey J. Williams and Callum Jamison, as opposed to Nick Nanui, really almost like he was playing against no one a lot of the time. English is a great player, but he can't do it all himself. And against what the Cats had, I really thought the Ruck contests were there for the taking, and Buku Kamas wasn't the right guy to be put to task in the center of the ground when English was off. You have Jordan Sweet, who did pretty well 
at times when English was out. You have Stefan Martin. Multiple true rucks was a key to last year's success. Why not have that again? Continue with this thread of questions about the dogs and continuing with how basketball player Kwani Kwani's friend Buku Kamis, should the Bulldogs be concerned that they haven't developed one real solid, fresh, full forward in the absence of Josh Bruce? They haven't been consistent in who they've been putting up there. Sometimes it's been Jamari Uwahagen. Sometimes it's been Buku. Sometimes it's been Josh Shackey right near the goal square. I like them all, but it's painfully obvious that they need one steadying presence there. You in particular, Ethan, were calling for consistency in terms of selection for Hugo Hagen at least. So maybe keep Hugo Hagen at the VFL for the rest of the year, unless he keeps putting up ridiculous numbers, and keep Buku at AFL level for the rest of the year and see if they'll both be able to develop in the right ways in order to supplement Bruce when he's back. Shaki did have a good performance in the VFL game earlier on Friday, naturally. I think you could kind of play the matchups between Shaki and Kamis, but yeah, with Eugle Hagen, you definitely need to just stick with one trajectory for him unless he really forces the issue. And I brought it up earlier. Why the interchange disparity? The dogs ended up using just 62 of 75 interchanges. The cats used all but one. Looking near the end of the game, the Bulldogs still had 19 left when Geelong had just five. The Bulldogs averaged 67, so I'm wondering why Luke Beveridge left so many of those changes unused when they were trying to make that late push. And with how he answers things at the press conference, I know that I would get absolutely no good information whatsoever from him. I was trying to piece together why Geelong had so few, and the only answer I could come up with was when Tom Stewart was being checked and being tested because they effectively only had three subs and 21 men to play with. They were rotating guys in and out much more quickly instead of waiting and having longer stretches without any sort of changes, which I understand, even if it has negative effects later. I get it. I can't explain at all why the Bulldogs were doing that, even if you don't like some of the guys that are on the bench. If we look at their time on ground, the only guy that didn't play a really significant portion close to two-thirds was Thomas, who was just at 53% of the time. Cody Waitman played 64%. Everyone else was over 70. So I'm not sure if they were trying to achieve certain matchups or what they were going for there. It just it doesn't make sense. Other time on ground notes that I will mention, Geelong really played Cooper Stevens less and less as this game went on. He only ended up playing 52% of the game, so could definitely give you an indication as to who bows out along with Parfit, who suffered that broken hand. When the Cats next play after the bye, Sam Manigola is going to be making a push to get in there, and Patrick Dangerfield should be back. Not to mention Cole Jashney, potentially. You would think Stevens is on the fringe, and Luke Dollhouse, who was a late ad, played 68% of the game. He did fine. He didn't do anything particularly special. Didn't do anything objectionable either. As I said, though, this is a very proud and gritty win for Geelong on the road against a finals caliber team, losing your best player. I'm thrilled with this one. A couple other notes that I do want to go through stat-wise. Mitch Duncan ended up finishing with a goal, a behind, 29 disposals, 8 marks, 685 meters gained. Cam Guthrie, 24 disposals. The midfield stepped up at a night where I thought they were going to be fighting the steepest of uphill battles. Guthrie played well. Parfit, fourth quarter, was just awesome. 
Duncan's first quarter was one of the best stretches I've seen from him ever. And that's considering he was nothing short of elite in 2020 and really good in 2021 when healthy. When Mitch Duncan plays like this, the Cavs midfield is on par with the best of them. And you combine that with really good forward and defense groups. And if there's a recipe for this team to win a flag, I still think they're a high floor, low ceiling team. But any recipe for them to win a flag this year comes with that sort of play from Mitch Duncan, where he's just a step ahead of everyone, seeing things that nobody else is seeing. If he's doing that, this team's possibilities are pretty limitless. And that was against a solid of a midfield that the Dogs have. Some big stat hauls for them as well. Jack McCray with 31 disposals and eight tackles. I think is only nine of his possessions were contested. Surprised he was playing a bit further back at times. Marcus Bonapelli had 23 disposals despite playing with a shoulder injury, as Luke Beveridge confirmed. Seems like it's what he's been going through the entire year. Surprised Bailey Smith only had 19 disposals despite a big third quarter just wasn't going to him as much. Out of the midfield group going forward, the big factor was Tom Libertore. Libba ended up with two goals in a behind from 30 disposals. He gained 549 meters. Had the dogs managed to turn it around, he probably gets three votes. He was the only player to show up for the dogs until early in the second quarter. He was great all night long. It's so conflicting for me. He's one of my favorite players. He's one of the goofiest guys in the sport. And then seeing him getting tangled up with my team is just like, I like all of you. Stop. Get along. And I will say, you know, everyone got along after the game, but it definitely does leave some intrigue for the round 20 rematch, which I was looking at during the second half. It's like, all right, at least the Cats get another shot at these guys. Hopefully Stewart will be fully healthy. Now, instead, they've got a chance to sweep the dogs at home and really put themselves in a good position points-wise to crack the top four. More on that in just a second. But yeah, tempers ran high in this game beyond just the headbutt. Another good performance from the back for Caleb Daniel for the dogs. 30 disposals, 6 marks, 10 score involvements, 550 meters gained. He's been rounding into form lately after a bit of a slow start to the year. Couple him with a rising Ed Richards, and the dogs can definitely produce from defense. They just have to have their forwards get on the right end of kicks, and they just weren't finishing. They didn't have the right connections inside 50. Ended up at just 33.3% disposal efficiency inside 50. The Cats were up near 48%. It was clear throughout this game that the dogs had the greater number of chances and just didn't make good on them between their own failures, and Geelong coming together as a defensive unit. And they were doing that both with and without Tom Stewart. Again, without Stewart, a couple breakdowns, an uncharacteristic poor play from Zach Tui, who honestly, outside of the headbutt, didn't have a huge night. Although after the headbutt, he started the sequence that got Cameron Goal to create a 13-point lead with 13 minutes left. What makes this game so cool is that There are so many different guys who contributed. You could go and have debates for hours about who deserves Brownlow votes. I think six goals probably gets Cameron three, but you could argue for DeConing. You could argue for Stanley. You could argue Blitzoffs is in the mix. You could argue for Mitch Duncan. You know, most of those guys, not so much for three votes, but for one or two. You could make a case for Parfit. You can make a case for Zuthry. It was just a fun, team-oriented win, 
and one where the cats won despite getting taken out of their element, which is something that had been lacking for a while. This was the sort of challenge that they usually couldn't handle. So this is huge heading into the bye. Coming out of the bye, if there's a time for Brandon Parfit to miss games, those next few weeks are a pretty opportune window for it. Out of the bye, they travel to Perth, but it's the Eagles. Then they play Richmond at the MCG, which won't be easy. Then host North Melbourne, and then the schedule really picks up again with the Demons. Dogs have their bye next week as well. Then they have the Giants at the showground. Then they have Hawthorne. And then after that, holy cow, at the Gabba, at the SCG, St. Kilda, Melbourne, Cardinia Park, Frio. That's a a six-round gauntlet there that's going to make or break their season. None of their remaining games are what you'd consider easy. A few weeks ago, oh, two second half games against GWS. All right, take care of those. Giants are playing a lot better lately. If the Bulldogs finish the season strong, not only will they be going into the finals, assuming they make it, with a few wins and some momentum, they'll have done it against good competition and really set themselves up for a nice run, even though it's been a blah season for them thus far. I'm just waiting to see how much Josh Bruce might be a missing piece for them. I think that'll tell a lot of the story for them going into the home stretch. So Geelong won while out of their element. Then to start the Saturday action, Friday night here in the U.S., the Crows and Eagles were thrown into the elements of South Australia. It was wet. It was windy. It was not the weather that produces good football. And this game ended up being entertaining for mostly the wrong reasons, I would say. The Crows led 32-1 to after a quarter. We were out at dinner while this was happening, celebrating my birthday. And Ethan told me the score, and I just thought, all right, I don't really need to watch through this one at all. At the halftime, I thought it was the same way. But the Eels were actually putting up a lot more of a fight than I expected. It may have not entirely shown on the scoreboard, But there were some better things going for them. It wasn't just Jack Darling scoring. He was the only multi-goal scorer. The movement was more solid. Having said that, they weren't efficient enough. And this was still the Crows game. They controlled the center circle. Their midfielder was doing the job. And they were spreading the ball like they should have been doing all along. I think Tex Walker being out last week definitely got them thinking the right way. And... They ended up having three players scoring three goals each, those being Walker, Darcy Fogarty, and Shane McAdam, who we had kind of glossed over in our previous discussions, but another very capable marker and a pretty accurate kick, ended up being Crows 13-10-88, defeating the Eagles 8-9-57. Just a lot more to talk and think about for me, and probably for you, than we expected from just how the game was going early on. I'll admit this was a game I wasn't watching that closely. There was more than enough other entertainment on between college and professional baseball. I just want to ask how much of what the Eagles did can be discounted by the score and how much of it was good structural play combined with, hey, they didn't give up despite the score. You also have to discount some things going against the Crows defense, though I did like what Patrick Parnell was able to do in his debut. Seems like he has good vision from the back lines. A pretty small defender, so he has to make up for that, for what he can do with the ball in hand. And he largely did, even though he ended up getting a corked thigh and had to be subbed out late. I just think that the Eagles were going through the right people, particularly just getting good avenues through which through which Luke Shuey and Andrew Gaff 
could move. It finally wasn't just Tim Kelly, which it had been for the past couple weeks. And even though it is still older members of the team, they still have some good runs in them. And they still managed to kick eight goals and get 17 scoring shots in wet conditions, despite having just 34.1% disposal efficiency on just 44 inside 50s. The Crows ended up with 59. The chances were there for both teams to take more advantage. The rain definitely played a factor. At the end of the day, the Crows were still the superior team, but I didn't leave completely dissatisfied as an Eagles fan, and that is much more than I expected going into it. Considering they have Geelong out of the bye, I hope absolutely none of those positives carry over, and then they can pick back up in round 15 and beyond, because I want them to be watchable. I want every team to be watchable, and most of their games lately haven't been anywhere near that. Individual stats to note, Rory Laird, 33 disposals, 9 tackles, 8 clearances and a goal. Ben Keyes, 29 disposals. Matt Crouch, 27 disposals. Jordan Dawson, 23 disposals, 9 marks, and 610 meters gained. That's a low running total for him. Taylor Walker, 3 goals, a behind, 22 disposals, 8 marks. Brody Smith, 21 disposals, 6 marks, 6 tackles, and a very nice 420 meters gained. Mitchell Hinge, 18 disposals, 6 marks, and 9 intercepts. Again, Andrew Gaff with a very active game, a goal and a behind, 30 disposals. Still has plenty left in him. He's one of those guys that I hope the Eagles sit down and ask if he wants to go elsewhere to actually get that premiership medal because he doesn't have one. He was suspended for the 2018 Grand Final for that senseless hit against Andrew Brayshaw, but never mind on that. Plenty of Victorian teams could use him as a depth piece. Luke Shuey with 27 disposals, 10 clearances, 6 tackles at 548 meters. I'd say he was probably best of ground for the Eagles. From the back, Jack Redden had 25 disposals and 7 tackles, with Jeremy McGovern out once again. A laid out because of his back injury that kept him out last time. Tom Barras really stepped up. 18 disposals, 14 intercepts, and 10 marks. Jake Waterman also with 9 further forward. And Greg Clark, a very proficient tackler, had 10 of them. That's one of the bigger positives, I'd say, for the Eagles, just looking at what the youth has been capable of. All right, I'm going to try something. Did you say Waterman's nine marks? Yes. I'm going to try something. Brian, no. I kind of wanted a sad whimper. Mm -hmm. Who was the Ruckman for Adelaide? Was it Brian? No. I need you to be quiet, Puggy Buckles. Oh, it was. Riley um, O'Brien. Yeah. With Stiltorp as the second. Riley O'Brien dominated the center circle. Hitouts went the way of the Crows, 48-30. to Riley Philthorpe served as the second ruck, by the way. Both these teams will be heading into the bye. Hopefully, they'll get to play in better conditions when they return to action in round 14. And hopefully, the Eagles can build off what they were able to accomplish in the later goings. They were close in the second quarter. They won the third and fourth. I was increasingly pleased with each of the final three quarters of the scores, say some of that, but still, I don't think this one game is going to change my view of the Eagles as a whole. I still think they're a largely uninspired side, and while some people might want to chalk it up to conditioning, I think these next games out of the bye will remind us that the coaches have lost the playing group. I just don't expect things to get better against a team that actually has a more solid defense, and that's a lot of them. And I'd like to congratulate the Eagles on two major milestones. 
First off, they ended the streak of 50-point losses at 7, tying the all-time record, and they're back over 50% for the season! You know, we try to transition between each game, try to find some sort of common link between them, and I guess the common link between games 2 and 3 out of this round were that a really shitty team played in each of them. The other shitty team being North Melbourne. The difference here is they played a really good first quarter and didn't do anything else right. They got smacked around by the Gold Coast Suns, 15-19-109 to 7-5-47. More than doubled up, a 62-point margin. And let's remember, North led this game 27-10 after a quarter. So after that, they got outscored 99-20. Second quarter was 49-0 and it Hardly got better from there. They did play a semi-respectable third quarter, only getting outscored 20 to 18 there, but then the fourth quarter was 30 to 2. So the odd numbered quarters, I guess, were okay. The first quarter, North looked legitimately good. They had good structure. They were moving the ball deliberately. They were holding their own defensively. Todd Goldstein was off to a nice start, but that was it. If you want to find another commonality here, it was that the elements were somewhat harsh in both games two and three, just on the opposite ends of things. Whereas it was rainy and windy and miserable in that way in Adelaide, it was 91 degrees Fahrenheit around bounce time, 33 degrees Celsius in Darwin. And that heat really didn't let up. Could definitely see it wearing on some players, and maybe there's an element of conditioning that goes into why North weren't able to keep up in the second and fourth quarters. Not entirely sure. I think it was more just the Suns starting to click. And they clicked pretty much as an entire team. We were really happy with what they did last week, and we saw a lot of the same things again. This after a first quarter that made you think, hmm, maybe they are going to lay an egg and might have to tough this one out. We both thought that this could be sort of a trap game for them, maybe underestimating North falling back down to earth, regressing to the mean, if not lower after last round. Definitely looked that way at the start of things, but Matt Rowell actually got on the ball more. A really solid game for him, both with and without the share, and keeping up with his great tackling. They actually let him use the ball some. It was great. He wasn't just in a tagging role. The biggest positive surprise of the game for me from the Suns was Alex Davies. For a while, he had been a fringe guy, one of the last guys on the team, was an easy omission when more defenders were healthy, stayed in over Sean Lemons this week, and actually played a great game, making a case to stay in there long term. And every week, it seems like the common thread has been throughout this strong stretch that the Suns' defensive structure has evolved. None of Davies' stats really jumped off the page at you, though he did have a goal. But he was just very active around the ball constantly, and he wasn't an afterthought. It was really encouraging to see, and it completely changed my perception of him from being a meth filler guy at best to someone with a pretty high ceiling. This was also a game where I really start to figure out just how impactful Connor Butterick has been, not just when the Suns have been good this year, but over the years With maybe about six, seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, they mentioned on the broadcast how he's equal with Stephen May for career intercepts with the Suns. And it just had never struck me that Butterick was this central player on defense. Maybe that's a product of me just 
not focusing on the Suns nearly enough. Or maybe it's just people finally noticing Butterick for the job that he's been able to do in being able to captain the defense in some ways once May's been gone with Rory Thompson out yet again and with Lockie Weller playing more on the wings. Unfortunately, a little before that comment was made, Weller slipped and ruptured his ACL. He'd been having a really great game. Had Had played really well the prior week against Hawthorne as well. Was looking really natural there. Ended up with 20 disposals and 802 meters gained, and that was still with about half a quarter left to play. So it's going to be hard for them to replace him, but maybe having Rao out toward the wings might allow him to continue to be effective with the ball in hand. And hey, maybe they can do more of that with Alex Davies. There's something to build off out of Davies' performance. Other stats of note, Tuke Miller, 32 disposals, 13 clearances, 8 tackles, and 799 meters gained in his 150th game. After the first quarter, the Suns really got things going in terms of clearances, and it really shifted the tide of this one. Butterick, who you mentioned a few minutes ago, 25 disposals, 15 intercepts. Rowell, 25 disposals, 11 tackles, 594 meters gained. David Swallow, second straight week with a nice performance, 22 disposals. Noah Anderson, 21 disposals, 6 tackles, 567 meters gained. Oleg Markov, 19 disposals, 9 intercepts, 565 meters gained. Will Powell, a goal, 2 behinds, 18 disposals, 8 tackles, 585 meters gained. The long ground lent itself to some guys putting up really big numbers in terms of distance gained. And heck, they kept their stamina the whole way. That was a real concern I had for them. It's a concern I have for every team playing at these sorts of longer venues, especially teams that really like these longer running passages like the Suns do, like the Hawks do. And that's in heat that was troubling enough that the teams were allowed to go inside between quarters. For the second straight week, Caleb Graham really stepped it up. Nine intercepts this time. Sam Collins and Jai Ferrer right behind him with eight intercepts apiece. Not a lot of positives for North outside of the first quarter, but I thought this was one of Aiden Core's best performances. He had been a guy that I really didn't see much of anything in in prior games, but he had 14 disposals, did a good job tagging guys defensively, and finished with 634 meters gained. Hugh Greenwood, 21 disposals and eight tackles. Luke Davies Uniac got off to a really nice start and finished with a goal, a behind, 25 disposals, 554 meters gained. Inside 50s went the Suns' way, 81 to 36. And yet, despite being the ones inside 50 way more, the Suns were tackled just once inside 50. Suns' defense recorded 22 tackles inside 50. How does that happen? To me, that's a signal that when the Suns gave up the ball inside 50, when they weren't as clean on their passing, they were on to North really quickly. Their pressure was good throughout this game, and sometimes it can specifically be back half pressure. Sometimes it's specifically forward half. Saturday, it was pressure all over the ground for the Suns. And meanwhile, North just couldn't keep up for one reason or another. I just don't get what it was with North that meant that they couldn't build off the strength that they had early on. Hitouts were going to be an important avenue for them, even up against Jared Witts, and Todd Goldstein did find some success there. North Melbourne were plus nine in hitouts, 51 to, 51 to 42, helped that they were able to rotate between Goldstein and Jerry rather than just having one guy up there, though I'm surprised Cholden get more of a chance at it for the Suns. 
But stop around those general stoppages, less so in the center circle, the North positioned themselves well. It was a strength of theirs in the first quarter, and then it just completely dried out, not to make a weather pun, and conditioning can't excuse that. I don't exactly know what it was that caused the breakdown. Maybe Gold Coast was able to see through them in a certain way because they were able to figure out what was working and prevent it from happening going forward. But this was one of North's best quarters, followed by one of their worst. And they couldn't recover from that in terms of the scoreboard and probably psychologically as well. They also had 90 turnovers for the game. They averaged 70.6. The Suns turned it over 70 times, three and a half below their average. Just another bad performance for North Melbourne. And they keep turning out bad performances in different ways. So it's like, what do you fix? What hole do you try to patch up? Because there are so many. For the Suns, they now head into the bye at 6-6. Six and six, And at least for the moment, they're in the finals conversation. They host the Crows in round 14. Then they've got a huge three-game stretch at Port Adelaide, home against both Collingwood and Richmond. Those three games should really make or break this team season, figure out, are they a real finals contender or are they just middle of the pack? The thing is, they should also be able to get some easier points if they are as good as they've shown to be these past couple rounds. They have five games left against the current bottom six. That's the most out of anyone. And none of those games are against GWS, who aren't playing bottom-tier football. The Suns were one of the few teams that the Giants actually looked good against before making the coaching change. And as for North, at this point, who fucking cares? Thanks to Anchor by Spotify, thanks to all the other podcatchers that are hosting us, and thank you to all of you, whether this is the 31st episode you've listened to, or the first after Shannon Gill gave us that publicity. If that's the case, then you're probably already following us at AmericansFooty on Twitter. If not... It's where we post our thoughts throughout each round, and really, anytime we have anything footy-related we want to talk about. I am personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media, and Grian Harambe, the footy cat, is on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. You can watch him sliding across the sheets on my bed in a recent video there. You know what people do care about is Melbourne against Sydney. This was the... Final Saturday night game, national TV in Australia on Channel 7, on FS1 in the US, and despite some suspect officiating down the stretch, this one lived up to the hype. Early on, Melbourne looked like they were in cruise control. Max Gone was really active early on, ended up actually figuring in more in terms of their offensive production in the second half, but from the early goings, you could tell that this was going to be that breakout game that we had been waiting for for a solid month at this point. They have two goals in as many minutes. I guess maybe the first warning sign for Melbourne was that Harrison Petty limped off a little bit after that, ended up being exposed a fair bit after that. But Melbourne led by 20 points at quarter time. Thing is, I said at the time, this game was actually a lot more even at that stage than the score showed. Each team had six scoring shots. The chances looked pretty equal, and Sydney just hadn't been able to capitalize on that. Even in that first quarter, there were some good signs for the Swans, with Sam Reed kind of playing the Buddy Franklin role. Reed's a guy who had caught a lot of criticism from Swans fans in past weeks, but without Franklin on the field, 
You know, the two have very similar skill sets and to accommodate both of them is difficult. And while obviously Franklin's hard to replace, Reed out there on his own does his thing just fine. And Tomlinson was far from his best, got caught a couple times, could just tell he hadn't been getting a lot of AFL action and he was thrust into a spot where he was trying to fill that Stephen May role and really he stood no chance. Reed had three goals all against Tomlinson before the halfway point of the second quarter. Then Logan McDonald scored a second after a diving mark following a Petraka turnover. One of the only mistakes Max Gaughan made all night, he had a fumble that set up an end-to-end sequence that led to a Tom Papley goal from 41 out because the square was open with three minutes left in the second quarter. So the Swans led by seven at that point. They went into the half up to Bailey Fritch did get the final goal of the first half to end a big Sydney run. The D's did go back in front off of a Bailey Fritch dribbler. He finished with three goals on the night. The D's looked like they were back in control after going into the fourth quarter up by seven, and it could have been more than that had Alex Neil Bolin not missed. Gone got the opening goal of the fourth quarter off of a free kick, one of Tom McCartan's very few misplays in the night. Gone drew a hold on McCartan and got a goal to make it 60-47 to with 19 minutes left. And that was the last goal the Demons scored. Isaac Heaney showed the fuck up this game, and he had to. He took a juggling mark despite Jaden Hunt leaping over him, and the resulting goal put it back within seven, just about a minute after that gone goal. A few minutes after that, Tom Pathley handballed to Logan McDonald for his third goal. Four players had three goals in this game, two for each side. Fritch and gone for Melbourne, McDonald and Reed for Sydney. A miss each way after that, with about five minutes left, it was 61-60, to 60, and then this is where the umpiring really came into focus. There was a relatively soft free kick given to Errol Golden, and he seems to never be rattled by the pressure at all. He put the Swans in front ultimately for good. 4.43 to go after the umpire gave the signal was 66-61. to 61. Golden figured in. Shortly after that, after a good mark by Gone, another one for him, Gone telegraphed the kick, Golden got it, ended up sending it back the other way. Sharon went toward Tom Papley in the right pocket. Then Ed Langdon was called for a push in the back that I didn't think was good at all at first. I turned off the game at that point. Langdon ended up sitting on him at the end. I thought maybe that would be more of the infraction, but I think the whistle was before that. Seems like... A lot of fans aren't as upset with that one as we are, though, judging by the responses that I got to the tweet that I put out and that maybe the golden one was the softer of the two. I know you weren't pleased with either of them. I thought the golden one was the worst of the two. Either way, once Papley kicked his 11 point margin with under three minutes to go, you know, there was still a chance for the D's to make something happen out of the center. Sure, Peter Laddams did a good amount, but Max Gaughan was in all-Australian captain form again. But the Swans ended up back inside 50. Even though Chad Warner missed, it was a full two-goal lead at that point, and that was all the scoring. It was Melbourne 9-7-61, defeated by Sydney 10-13-73. As you said, a game that lived up to expectations in terms of the closeness, all the different scoring opportunities, and surprisingly out of that, The D's have their first back-to-back losses since rounds 15 and 16 in 2020, which oddly enough came against the same two teams as their losses these past two rounds, the Swans and the Dockers, but this time it was in reverse order. 
But once again, when it mattered in the fourth quarter, the Swans made the right adjustments. They made the right plays. Sydney have won 10 of 12 fourth quarters this season. And even though the third quarter is described as the premiership quarter, the fourth is what ends up getting you over the line in these tight games. That's a really good sign for them going toward the rest of the season and potentially to finals. It's hard to think that this is a team that could still miss out on the finals. But with how crowded fourth through 12th is on the ladder, who knows at this point? Patty McCartan had a monster game, 10 intercepts, nine spoils, four intercept marks. He defended five 1v1 contests and won four of them. He was given three votes for the Golden Fist on bounce. Bang. But I'm so used to these performances from him. I thought Tom McCartan was the unsung hero. He and Patty played really well off each other. This was the best game I've seen Tom play. And it's one of those things where I like to talk about known quantities versus the surprises. Patty McCartan being a big interceptor is a known quantity. Tom McCartan joining forces with him and playing a great game is the surprise element here. And it's a positive surprise that really helped put the Swans over the edge. Four marks, four intercepts. I think a seven tackles is the one most indicative of his impact. With how good Patty is in the air, Tom was able to do more on the ground. I was really impressed with a couple of the plays that he had against Kazi Pickett. It's so hard to contain him. And Tom managed to do that. Other stats of note, once again, Callum Mills racking up every possible category. 26 disposals, 10 tackles, and 7 marks. Jake Lloyd, 22 disposals and 9 marks. Errol Golden, goal, 17 disposals, 7 intercepts. He really stepped up in the fourth quarter. Sam Reed finished with not just the 3 goals and a behind, but 16 disposals and 10 tackles? Logan McDonald is this week's Rising Star nominee. Three goals, two behind, 16 disposals, five marks, and nine score involvements. And Chad Warner, 530 meters gained. He was another one who really survived that battle of attrition. For Melbourne, a lot of their best work either started or went through Max Gone. Three goals and a behind, though the behind came at a really inopportune time when it could have put him up seven with eight and change remaining. Still, 3-1, 30 hitouts, 28 disposals, nine marks. Three votes in defeat for sure. In the midfield, Clayton Oliver with 29 disposals, 7 tackles, 7 intercepts. That's a low total for him, actually, 29. Did help that Christian Petraka was back to his normal self with 25 touches. Looking further back, Jack Viney had 32 disposals. Christian Salem with 20 and 542 meters in his return, maybe helping fill that sort of Stephen May gap a bit with Tomlinson playing poorly and Petty being off the ground a lot. And Angus Brayshaw, he can play pretty much everywhere and had and spent a whole lot of time back in this one. 24 disposals, 7 marks, gained 546 meters. Other than gone, he was the only player that was consistently kicking well the entire night. And because of that, I really thought that the Ds were going to end up switching toward a more handball-oriented game. It would have forced them to push the tempo, which I know isn't always what they like to do, and maybe that could have played into the Swans' hands. It's very rarely what they like to do unless they get into one of those runs where they snap off five goals in 10 minutes. At the same time, with how little their kicking was working outside of those two players, I was expecting them to at some point at least try it, and I'm surprised that Simon Goodwin didn't. But the Swans' pressure arrived starting in the second quarter, and combining that with their greater efficiency and accuracy, they exploited Melbourne's weaknesses and they were off to the races. 
I did go back and watch those final few minutes, of course. But before that, I ended up talking with a lot of people on Twitter just about various parts of this game. Was talking about the questionable umpiring late. Was talking about the McCartan brothers. This was Tom's best performance in at least two years. I got into a really good conversation with Donnie Hess, the footy correspondent for the 4th and Long podcast. You definitely check them out. He's out in Iowa. He's a big Swans fan. And we were both really pleased with how Sydney distributed the ball a lot more, especially inside 50. We've been calling for this for a while, but he's paid the big money to do all sorts of great things. He's a thousand goal kicker for a reason, but the Swans are at their best when they go to all these different targets. They had to do that this game, even with how well Sam Reed was going, and they look better for it. Meanwhile, for Melbourne, I already mentioned how I thought their kick-first approach was flawed. My bigger takeaways were more on personnel. Ben Brown was goalless for his third straight game. He's not a guy that I like to rag on. He's one of the first players that we really came to notice just with how unique he is in terms of appearance and some of his skill set. But there's something off with him. I call for him to be dropped in favor of Sam Wiedemann. When I saw that didn't happen, I thought that there was some potential for some issues there. And Brown did have one good goal assist to go on, but, but otherwise he really wasn't heard from at all. And that's a pretty big concern. Is there anyone else they could go to besides Brown or Wiedemann? I mean, Tom McDonald would have been a really nice one to have forward at times, as well as for defensive stability, but he was a laid out again, and it turns out he's got a Liz Frank injury, and that's something that ranges from three months to potentially 12 if surgery is required. So he's probably out at least through the rest of the home and away season, potentially longer. Maybe if Luke Jackson is able to get up the ground quickly as well, he could be another good guy to go to, but you've also got to have him or gone close enough to the ball to get into those ruck contests. So it's something that they'll have to figure out. Wiedemann did have three first half goals in the VFL last week, so maybe he is worth more of a substantial chance instead of these brief flashes. Overall, this was a test of the D's more immediate depth. Their next four to six players beyond their best 22 I'm still a bit surprised that they wilted the way they did. Yes, Stephen May is a perennial All-Australian, as he should be. Tom McDonald was a laid out again. And then also in defense, Harrison Petty's knee and his shoulder were wrapped. Jake Lever didn't look right. He only took two marks. They're a low-pressure team by default, and they can afford that only if their back line is as complete and as solid as they had been the 17 games before these past two rounds. They've got to adjust, be more forthcoming with their pressure if their defense stays thin for the Queen's birthday clash against Collingwood, which now is even more massive than it already would have been. The conclusion that I'm kind of drawing from this is that the D's system works really well with a very specific group of players. are a very particular set of skills. And Stephen May is probably the absolute most important guy that they have to have to keep that system's integrity, but you wonder, what if they got hit with injuries like, say, Richmond? Would they be able to adapt and modify what they're doing in-game like Richmond has done throughout this season? Because the Tigers have rolled out some completely different teams and completely different strategies. Could the Demons do that, or is it 
we have to get these guys to play this exact way or else it all falls apart. Well, coming out of the bye, we'll be able to see which way it is for them. They have Brisbane out of the bye. They go to the Adelaide Oval, who knows what will happen there, especially with the one-point defeat they had there last year. Then they've got Geelong at Cardinia Park, then Port, then the Dogs, all their question marks. Rio in Perth, Collingwood, Carlton, and at the Gabba the rest of the way. Nothing is going to come easy for them. People have been saying that they'd had a weaker schedule at this point. I'm only now realizing just how much that might have been the case. The Swans, meanwhile, go into their bye this coming round, and then they should be very fresh heading into a big Saturday afternoon game at Port Adelaide. You mentioned that Queen's birthday match, which is now between two teams that are in the top eight. Collingwood now sit in eighth place following a rain-soaked, sloppy, poorly umpired four-point win over Hawthorne that I really couldn't make anything out of. Hawthorne 10-8-68, defeated by Collingwood 10-12-72. When it comes to American football, I've talked about how fun, ugly, bad-weather football is. This was also ugly, bad-weather football, but it was just awful officiating, and it seems to be following the Hawks around. Whereas the Hawthorne-Brisbane game was just a free kick fest, it was bad over umpiring, but at least you knew what was coming. In this game, you never knew. One minute they're calling everything, the next they're calling nothing, there's no consistency, there was no flow to this game. Hold on, I think the umpire down the road is calling a free against you for your descent. Oh yeah, and there were times when the umpire, you know, 50 meters away was the one overruling the one right in front of the play. 50? How about 70? That was what happened when Darcy Moore got called for contact below the knees, sliding in to rush the Sharon through for behind. Sam Butler somehow was the beneficiary of that, and his point-blank kick gave Hawthorne their first lead. Whether it's football, basketball, baseball, soccer, hockey, a water polo, any sport, the key to officiating is having a good angle. A lot of actual training for umpires and officials in any sport isn't so much about actual rules. It's about positioning. And when the guy 60, 70 meters away is the one making the call instead of the guy right in front of the action, you've lost the plot. Ethan can go off some baseball umpiring experience for this. Yes, baseball umpire training. I umpired youth levels, never with any players over the age of 14, but... Most of the training isn't about making calls. Most of it's about positioning. It's about giving yourself the best angle to get the call right. And that's a universal trait that can be applied to adjudicating any sport ever. And these guys didn't do that. As for the actual football, the early stages of this game, it was really what I expected. Two teams that are still under new systems, but teams that unquestionably love to run. They were trying to get their breaks, but... Their own clumsiness, helped partially by the elements, got in their way. A couple questionable frees to Jack Ginnivan set the tone. There's a whole lot of talk about the way that the umpires treated him. He got these calls early, didn't get some late. He did appear to be kind of ducking or leaning into some high contact situations. So that's actually a case where it could be understandable. But with how suspect the officiating was throughout this one, it's hard to say. Two of Collingwood's first three goals were... To Ginevan off of suspect calls. The real highlight early on for Hawthorne was the first AFL goal for Chankwoth Jaff, who was on a big run. I think he came all the way from half back 
if not further, picked it from 55 to put it within 15 near the start of the second quarter, was thinking, all right, the Hawks might actually be able to get something from here. And then the next time Hawthorne had a real chance, Ned Reese, for some reason, decided to mark rather than to spoil when he was against Jack Crisp, despite having seven inches on him. Ball ended up being picked up by Crisp later on. Pat Lipinski finished. Collingwood ended up 17. The Pies were reliably scoring off turnovers in the first half. And even when the scoring dried up, when everything else got wetter because it really started coming down at halftime, Collingwood were still effective intercepting, crumbing off Hawthorne possessions. They were making the most of their opponent's mistakes. That's what a middle-of-the-pack team has to do in order to get the edge. We mentioned Jaff getting his first goal. Since coming back from his injury, he's been a bit more muted compared to the first five rounds. I think that's not just him having to get back up to speed. I think it's also opponents doing a lot to try to prep for him because when he's running and doing his thing, Hawthorne are really hard to stop. And that's a sign of respect that he's become a focal part of opposing game plans so quickly. It's funny. I had said early on, oh, great, the first game on Sunday is another blowout. And I was kind of checked out. And then the third quarter rolled around and things got really interesting. Hawthorne trailed by just five after three, outscoring Collingwood 25 to seven in that quarter. Luke Bruce had a Mark of the Week candidate and a goal in his 250th career game. Mitch Lewis nailed one from 56 after getting taken high by Darcy Moore. Blake Hardwick had a nice intercept and threw that awful call against Moore with that contact below the knees that the umpire from, like, outside 50 called. Might have been on the other side of the center line, even. The Hawks got their first lead almost exactly midway through the third quarter, but that didn't pull Collingwood apart. Crisp set up Ollie Henry right before the third quarter siren. Henry gave the Pies the lead back, and then they went back and forth from there. It was a fun fourth quarter despite the bad officiating. Lewis, off of an interesting holding call, got his fourth goal less than a minute into the final quarter. Chad Wingard earned a free because Jeremy Howe basically just leapt into his back. And then through all the confusion of where the kick should be, he just kind of picked it up, played on, ran into the goal square and scored. Ended up gesturing to the fans on the run in, a la Ginevan. I was thinking at that point, all right, either this is going to be a really good look if you win or a really bad look if you lose. And um, it was the latter. I don't think it ended up being a main talking point. But I'm sure if you're a Collingwood fan, you can look back on this and laugh. Jordan Ngoi got a mark behind Jaff and scored from 56 to cut the lead back to four. All these longer kicks are just even more impressive considering the conditions in which they were kicked. Collingwood mounted a ton of pressure, only got a couple behinds out of it. But finally, Henry picked up two big marks in a minute, getting one over Jarman Impey and scoring to give the Pies a four-point lead with 523 left. That was the last score at all for the game. 72 to 68 was your final. The Pies really had all the forward pressure the rest of the way. Could have gotten another goal for insurance. Didn't do it. The Hawks did get the ball into the forward half in the final minute, but never got the mark they needed. Collingwood did get away with a mistake in the final seconds where Brody Majacek decided to pick a ball up off the deck instead of waiting for Bo McCreary to 
just come up to it and soccer it away. Probably could have run out the rest of the clock. McCreary still got his chance to make the play to finish the game and did with a tackle with about 20 seconds left. And that was that. So despite all of the officiating, there was so much to take away from this game. I was watching it more from a Hawthorne perspective. I think this is a good model for the rest of the season for Hawthorne, even though they got down instead of jumping out ahead and setting the tone really well. They fought, they got back in the game, they weren't just scoring off counterattacks, they showed some versatility, and they continued their upward trajectory. The league is adjusting to them, teams are understanding how to game plan for them, and they're still taking quality teams down to the wire. This was really the first time I had noticed Blake Hardwick at all. I thought he played pretty well, he had eight intercepts, and... This game was a testament to the importance of both Jai Newcomb and James Sicily because Sicily got off to an awful start. One of the biggest reasons they gave up five goals in the first quarter. He really got his act together from there, finished with 11 intercepts, along with 24 disposals, seven marks, and 631 meters gained. And Newcomb ended up with 12 tackles, by far the highest for either team, 23 disposals, and eight clearances. And when those two get going... A lot goes well for Hawthorne, even with Sam Frost out suspended. Along with Blake Hardwick, Lockie Bramble helped make up for Frost being out as well. He had eight intercepts himself. Tom Mitchell with another solid performance coming through the center. 32 disposals, seven tackles, gained 464 meters. And Mitch Lewis has been so consistent in his goal kicking. Four goals straight this time. He's played nine of Hawthorne's 12 games. He scored three or more in seven of those and four or more three times. With some of the other Coleman candidates suffering injuries, maybe he could sneak into this race. Hopefully, Jeremy Cameron stays healthy, but... And hopefully, Charlie Kernow stays healthy to keep it a race, to keep it a battle. But going back to the stats on this one and shifting toward Collingwood, both Dacos brothers played really well, didn't have to play off of each other entirely because they lined up in different spots a lot of the time. Josh's numbers didn't jump out as much as Nick's. Nick with a game-high 36 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 789 meters gained. Those just aren't the kind of numbers that a 12th gamer is supposed to have. But he looks well beyond his years. He looks more polished than his brother does. And that's hardly a knock on Josh. That's much more just a compliment to Nick. Additionally, Pat Lipinski with a goal and 29 disposals. Taylor Adams has been someone that we've both really noticed these past couple weeks doing well. 28 disposals, 7 tackles, gained 518 meters. Jack Crisp with 25 and 460 meters gained. A lot of one-goal scores in this one for Collingwood. Still side-bottom with a goal and a behind, 24 touches. Jordan Degoe with that big goal from 56 late, had two behinds as well. 21 disposals, gained 466 meters. Nathan Murphy and Isaac Quinter had 10 intercepts apiece. Quainter was particularly a high flyer at times, but... This was the Darcy Cameron game more than anything. A goal and a behind, 26 disposals, 19 hitouts, 9 marks, 6 clearances, 3 tackles. He gained 404 meters. For someone who was far from being a starting player at the start of this season, I mean, Brody Grundy has been their guy in the ruck for so long. For Cameron to put up this performance is massive. Two other Collingwood observations I had. Ollie Henry puts the Ollie in Hollywood. He's such an exciting player, whether he's succeeding or failing. He's one of those guys, when he's on the field, shit happens. And Jack Dinneman, 
while he's going to catch a lot of crap for drawing so many free kicks and he's been an easy target to begin with, I just want to say he always looks like he is having so much fun out there. You can tell this guy loves the sport, is having so much fun playing football, and I hope other players can outwardly display that same spirit that he does. I mean, he's always smiling. You can tell it's like it's like he's just looking around thinking, man, this is really my life right now. And that's great. You know what else was great? Sunday night, if you had Bailey in your name because you kicked four goals. Zach Bailey for Brisbane, Bailey Banfield for Fremantle, maybe the most surprising performance of the round, even more surprising than Darcy Cameron. Oh, way more surprising. So much happened in this Fremantle-Brisbane game. It seemed like every quarter had a distinct flavor to it. The first quarter was a really slow burn, a feeling out in more ways than one. I'm surprised that there were even four goals with how slow the pace was. Things definitely picked up in the second. It was when Frio really started to take control, even though they were behind by a point at halftime. The second half could be summed up with two words, and that's center clearances. The team that won those tended to be the one that ended up scoring. Even though Brisbane ended up with one more center clearance for the game, Fremantle seemed to get the better of them overall in the second half. Will Brody broke out, and with it, so did Fremantle as a whole. The third was when Bailey Banfield got three of his four goals, and they all came really quickly. The Lions had a few chances mid to late third quarter, but only managed a single behind from all the pressure they were able to sustain. They were never as clean as they usually are with the ball. Were they feeling the heat figurative in this case, unlike Darwin? Were they in their own heads? I thought Fremantle were lucky to get out of the third quarter still up 17, despite getting 36 points from stoppage in a quarter, their most ever. The fourth quarter was much more back and forth. It was when Brisbane got some better chances out of center clearances. It was when some of their pressure in their forward half ended up paying dividends. But at the end of it, the Dockers were too much for them. It was a team win, even though a few players had some big stats and goal hauls. Brandon Walker was really impressive in defense, did a lot of good work on Charlie Cameron, and that was visible even though Walker held him late and that allowed Charlie to kick his third. At that point, even though the Lions got the next goal after that too, it was out of reach. Fremantle won 15-9-99 to 13-7-85. And even though their positions on the ladder didn't change, Brisbane second, Fremantle third, this game establishes for me that the Dockers are the D's number one contender. And the only thing that can stop them is moisture. This is the part where I'm going to sing. Rio, we told you so. Predicted they'd be good. How did you not know? I was right. Your voice has gotten a lot better. Not great, but passable, would you say? For a podcast, passable. Specific performers for Fremantle that stood out for me. Yes, this was a team win, but there were a few guys who went above and beyond in this game. First off, Griffin Lowe, over the course of this season, has transitioned from last guy selected to, oh my god, he's a shutdown defender who played his ass off in the win over Geelong, to playing as a forward and kicking two goals. Watch out in that Coleman race, Jake Kolejashny. This guy's versatility is off the charts. Michael Frederick, I've said, if he just gives good forward pressure, kind of leads that full court press, he's valuable. He took 10 marks and was scoring off set shots to go with 411 meters gained. So now he's running with the ball. 
He's using his speed to create problems on defense. He's taking marks despite being one of the smaller forwards. He's a good long kick. I think he's started to realize, and I think the coaches have started to realize, how to really deploy him. And I think they're starting to understand this is what an average performance for Michael Frederick looks like for us. And this is what a good performance for Michael Frederick looks like. And this was a good performance. Bordering on great, I'd say. Jordan Clark didn't have any big numbers, but did a good job picking up some balls off the deck, whether that be in the center circle or in their own 50. Speaking of picking up balls off the deck, Andrew Brayshaw, 39 disposals, 9 clearances, 6 tackles. All those center clearances, that whole sequence, he was a big part of. Will Brody had a game-high 10 clearances along with 25 disposals. Caleb Sarong, a goal, 31 disposals and 7 tackles. James H. got involved in a pretty big scrum in the second quarter that led to a bunch of fines being handed out. H. finished with a goal, 29 disposals, 9 marks, gained 566 meters. That was his first goal since 2018, by the way. And he looked like a badass doing it with his jersey ripped open. Hayden Young, 23 disposals, 8 marks. Luke Ryan, 527 meters gained, 9 intercepts, 20 disposals. And to round things out, Travis Collier, 17 disposals, 8 marks, 503 meters gained. I like the Simpsons meme that you had shown me, kind of based off of the What's a Donut from that multiverse. I think it was a Treehouse of Horror episode. Must have been. Anyway, basically, it illustrates that these guys are just fine defensively without Adam Jarrah. And they've got versatility shining out of every orifice. This was such a great performance by Fremantle. This was not only a statement win, it's shown that they have multiple ways to win. And they displayed multiple ways to win within this game. If you had told me at the start that that this was going to be a high-scoring game, both teams were going to get over 80 points, I would have said, no way Fremantle wins. Instead, Bailey Banfield and Michael Frederick combined for seven goals, and Griffin Logue had a pair, and that was that. They showed they could win a higher scoring game because when you think of what sort of game Fremantle needs to play, both teams in the 50s to 60s, a lot of defensive pressure, not a lot of daylight. And when this thing turned into a rapid chain of goals, the Dockers were just fine. Rio can switch up their pace during a game really easily. They can work well pretty much regardless of the speed at which they choose to go because of how many options they have and how many pieces are working for them in any direction. So for Justin Longmere and company, it's a matter of choosing when to push the tempo, when to dial things back a bit. Against the Lions, I really liked them pushing the tempo. I said while recapping the Giants win that I noticed that the Lions have had trouble as of late getting back into defense quickly. There was one time where there was one time there where they did a really good job of that. I believe late in the first quarter, might have been early in the second. But most of the time, when Fremantle got those runs, they were able to take advantage of Brisbane not being able to set up going back. When they're able to set up, they can be rock solid. They have good interceptors and structure where they can get people in the right place. But Fremantle didn't allow that. One of the other things that was so fascinating was that this game changed pace midway through quarters instead of during quarter breaks. For example, Brisbane really taking the upper hand despite Fremantle controlling the pace through the latter half of the first quarter. And then the game kind of shifted again as it tightened up before halftime. So the midpoint of each of the first and second quarter 
really signaled a shift. And Fremantle handled that really well. I know we go on and on almost every week, at least every week where there isn't water falling from the sky, about how good this team is, about every different element. Do you believe us now? They got taken out of their comfort zone in a lot of different ways in this game, despite being in their own building, and they passed the test. That said, I wouldn't be all that surprised if Hawthorne style gave them some trouble with Hawthorne's ability to counterattack. Or maybe the Dockers just overwhelm them with pressure and wipe the floor. Both realities are equally possible. As for the Lions, I don't think this is necessarily a bad loss. They got beat by a really good team that played a really good game and handled pretty much everything Fagan threw at them. I thought Fagan coached a perfectly fine game. The Dockers were just able to answer what he had. And also the Lions just weren't as clean with the ball in hand as they needed to be. Charlie Cameron seemed to feel the heat from Brandon Walker's pressure a lot. He wasn't anywhere near as tidy with the ball as he normally was. Still managed three goals straight, so still a very good kick. But with Joe Danaher out, he still needs to be more than a good kick, even when Zach Bailey also had four goals and Daniel McStay, too. The big numbers for the Lions, Brandon Starcevich with a game-high 11 intercepts. Dane Zorko had 21 disposals and eight tackles despite his hand exploding, it looked like. In the second quarter, still not exactly sure what it was. Some people were saying it was split webbing, like the hand kind of opening up between the fingers. Maybe he just got Jason Pierre Paul. Hugh McCluggage had 24 disposals, 10 marks and 6 tackles. He gained 462 meters. Jared Lyons also with 24 disposals and 10 tackles. Lockie Neal with 31 disposals, and you could tell whenever he had the ball because the Fremantle fans did not forget that he spurned them a few years back. And then Daniel Rich with obscene statistics. If you had him in fantasy, you were very happy with this game, regardless of the results. 32 disposals, 10 intercepts, 7 marks. He gained 906 meters. I was saying early on, especially when the Lions were up multiple goals in the first quarter and early on in the second, that they should start tagging him. And I don't think they ever really did. But because the Lions weren't able to finish some of the good work that he had started, it ended up not mattering. There were some sequences where Rich, as we had kind of expected, Rich did a really good job getting things out of the back end, but then nobody else was really able to extend the momentum from his runs. This is the sort of team that Brisbane is going to need to be able to beat to overcome their final struggles. I would have loved to have seen a rematch at the Gabba on the home and away schedule. Unfortunately, we don't have that, but the line schedule is still jam-packed with all sorts of important games. I'm trying to get some of my friends to tune into that one because it's going to be on Fox Sports 1. It's going to be the only game of Round 13 that's on a station that most people get in America. They've got St. Kilda twice in their final 10 games. They got Melbourne twice in their final 10. They've still got the Bulldogs, Richmond, Carlton. Who knows what GWS could be? And that home Q clash is all of a sudden looking a lot more interesting, too. I'll believe a Q clash will be competitive when it actually happens. Hopefully it is, because I strongly believe that all the non-Victorian rivalries deserve a Friday night to themselves. And if it is a good game, I think that'll help my case even more. Rio have one more game before the bye as well. They host Hawthorne. Both these teams are going to have a bit of a list crunch in the next couple of weeks. Assuming he comes back into the AFL after his waffle performance, I don't know who you take out for Nat Fife, and you're still waiting on 
getting Matt Taverner, Michael Walters, and Heath Chapman back. Lloyd Meek seems like he might be on the way out again, even though every time he's been in there, he's been great. I think it'll have to be Meek. I think Darcy Tucker will pay the price as well. Griffin Logue has clearly forced the issue to keep himself in the lineup. He would have been, a few weeks ago, a very easy out, and he's totally changed the trajectory of his season and maybe his long-term position with this club. But I wouldn't be shocked if Meek and some of the other guys that are kind of on the bubble, on the periphery right now, look to play elsewhere just to get more stable playing time. And I think we could be looking back in a few years at this Fremantle roster and realize just how many exceptional players were on this squad. And I just hope that they're able to keep this trajectory up because you look, for example, at the 2017 Crows and what happened to them since. So I don't think Fremantle's going to employ collective mind, but they need to make sure to A, figure out which of these guys are worth keeping and B, make sure that as some guys do go elsewhere, because some of them will just for the sake of wanting more playing time, they've got to be able to keep the culture strong. And they got to be able to get good compensation as well. Heck, Bailey Banfield was the sub a lot of the time. And he explodes in this game, was good in the past couple, actually. It's an impossible task for Longmere and list management to figure out how everybody's going to fit into this. Chris Fagan's going to have a difficult task figuring out how to slot Joe Danaher back in. He is expected to be back against the Saints this coming week. Good problems to have. Mitch Robinson didn't even make the trip out west. That's how loaded the Lions are right now. He did do some live commentary on YouTube during the game and during halftime, which was a lot of fun. It was just fun to watch him react to various plays. He's good for footy. Also good for footy. This week's nominees for Mark and Goal of the Week, starting with the Mark as always. Last round's nomination went to Charlie Spargo for his fly over Darcy Tucker. This round, you got Luke Bruce, the milestone man is 250th, leaping above and between Braden Maynard and Pat Lipinski, plus he had Jacob Kaczynski crashing in as well. In that same game, you had Isaac Quainer with a pretty solid mark over Dylan Moore, and you had Taylor Walker, a mark that a lot of people probably didn't notice because they were tuned out of this game at this point. It was in the final seconds. It was over Shannon Hearn. He got his right leg over Hearn's right shoulder at the boundary right before the final siren. Who do you like out of these three? Bruce. Yeah, pretty obvious. I was impressed by Tex in the moment, but even with Bruce not really making that much contact, I mean, the two of us really like the springboard marks, but the pack situation here makes it even more impressive that Bruce didn't really make contact. I mean, this is one that I hope to see on Brownlow night. Goal of the week, last week's winner was Jeremy Cameron, where he received the handball from Brad Close, held it against his backside with his left hand, and then snapped around the corner on his left from the left pocket. This week's nominees, we've got Darcy Fogarty. He ran through the center square, drilled it from 62, and got a great roll, despite adverse conditions. We've got Jason Horn Francis, who first... Received a nice handball from Todd Goldstein, but this isn't handball of the week, it's goal of the week. Horn Francis cleaned up his own fumble, spun around Oleg Markov, and deep Charlie Ballard before kicking the goal from close range. The kick itself, nothing spectacular. The events leading up to it, remarkable. And finally, Isaac Rankin, who received a David Swallow handball, 
and kicked a goal from the right pocket. Who's your winner here? I like what you said. It's certainly not handball of the week, but at the same time, there's a lot more that goes into goal of the week than just the kick. And for the work that he did to make that kick possible, I've given my vote to Jason Horn Francis. We agree on both. All right. Speaking of handballs, though, was I the only one who noticed some insanely long handballs this week? Like 30, 40 meter handballs? This was the round of long handballs. And it's fun because you never know when they're going to come. You never expect it. You expect to be like a little three meter handball. And some of these went way longer, longer than some kicks. And it's giving me the idea when they do the grand final sprint. I'd also like to see a long handball competition. See, who can hit the longest handball? It's a skill that rarely is needed, but it's a cool party trick. I would love to see a sort of skills competition at the G, maybe the day before the game, maybe like after the grand final parade, perhaps. It's like getting the best out of the NHL and NBA skills competitions. I would love to see what the AFL could manage with that sort of premise in mind. Also, reports coming out from the Herald Sun that the AFL is telling umpires to go easier on dissent instead of just handing out 50-meter penalties. I will believe it when I see it. I can believe that the AFL has said something about it. We can't really predict exactly how that's going to look, though. What it's going to look like, what is the appropriate level of dissent, and can they establish consistency with it? Because... Consistency is key with this stuff. The issue is, it's already the middle of the season. There's going to be so much controversy and so much discourse around what was paid in the first half that wasn't the second. None of it is going to end up looking good for the league, and they're going to have to live with that one way or the other. At least they've realized that they have a problem and need to fix it. You also have a problem if you don't follow us, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at AmericansFooty. You can find me individually at Castle Media. That is Castle with a K, by the way. I'm at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is on Instagram at catnamedbrian. And we have a lot more coming up in these next couple weeks. Not as much as we had last week. Again, go back and listen to our ranking special. Listen to our progress reports for the teams that didn't play this past round. We'll have a fresh batch of progress reports for the six teams that have buys round 13, and we'll have our round preview in time for that action as well. And it begins Thursday night this round. We'll have six games over five days. Also want to mention, there is an option to to support this podcast. We'd love to have you on board. We love doing this. And if we're able to bring in a little bit of profit off it, it means we can devote more time to this and less time to other things. So instead of proverbially digging ditches, we can produce more and more content and talk more and more footy. So thank you to anyone who does jump on board there. We really do appreciate it. And we're glad you enjoy listening to us. And more than anything, we enjoy bringing this to you. Thanks, Basil.